Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoyed the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you and to worship King Jesus together again on this wonderful Lord's Day. And we have a special privilege uh, this day that we had to have Dr. Don Whitney from Southern Seminary here with us. And I remember being in college and had been a Christian since I was probably about in fifth grade and wanting to learn how to grow in Christ, not sure what to do, uh, really undiscipled. And then someone, I don't know who, uh, gave me a book entitled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And so I began to read that and began to put into practice the things that were in that book and began to walk other guys uh, through that book. And it's such an honor uh, for me and for our church to have the author of the book here with us today preaching uh, in my place, which is just amazing to me. And then on top of that, I'm in seminary and I take his class on spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, which has been my lowest grade in seminary. Um, I read, a, read the syllabus wrong and I did not get a good grade in my spiritual disciplines class. Um, but grace abounds, right? And while we're in class, he's teaching uh, a, a topic on how to pray through the Bible. And that was one of the most revolutionary things in my life that I learned, not only just in seminary, but I think in my entire Christian life. Because I think it is the common experience of Christians to say, I, I want to learn how to pray in a more faithful manner. I, and we prayed for 30 minutes in class. He challenged us, go out and pray for 30 minutes doing what I've taught you. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. And he said, he gave a guarantee. It wasn't like a tuition back guarantee kind of thing, but it was, I'll give you a guarantee that you will all pray for 30 minutes and lose track of time. And sure enough, it happened. I looked at my watch and went, oh, I got to get back to class. And he's, that book, his new book and that teaching has changed my life. And he'll be here tomorrow night teaching us how to pray through the scriptures. And so we just have a great privilege to have this wonderful uh, man of God with us. So would you welcome uh, Dr. Whitney? <laughs> Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Jeff, for those very kind words. When Jeff did take the class, he uh, helped me a great deal. That uh, was a kind of class we call a hybrid modular class where you ramp up online. You come to campus just for two days. It's two hard days. Um, and They're pretty intense. And then you go back and do the rest of it online. And the first day, I got terribly sick. And, uh, but I thought, these guys have come so far, and they deserve better than a, a video. So it's the only time I've ever taught sitting down. And uh, during the breaks, two guys would arm me up like this, and I'd go about 20 yards away to a little couch, and I would sleep for 10 minutes during the break. And they'd wake me up, Dr. Whitney, time to teach again. So I'd get up, and they'd arm me back in there. And Jeff was a great help to me during that time. I'll never forget that. And uh, so it is good to be back. I don't think you mentioned I was here how long ago? Two years ago? Yeah. Something like that. It is great to be back, and uh, so thank you. Uh, let's, let's get into the Word here rather than spend much more time on these. Um, there's a wonderful promise here in Romans 8.31 where the, where the Bible, Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do you know if God is for you? 
That's very important when you consider that the alternatives are that God is for you or that God is against you. And if God is against you, there isn't much hope, is there? So how do you know whether God is for you or not if you want to get married, but nothing ever works out? Does that mean God is against you? And if you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean that God is for you? What if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you want to have children and you're unable to do so? Does that mean God is against you? What if you have many wonderful children? Does that mean God is for you? What if you uh, can't get a job or you lose your job? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented success on your job? Does that mean God is for you? If you're always having money trouble, does that mean God is against you? And if you win the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes, does that mean God is for you? How do you know? Well, in the final analysis, none of the things I've just mentioned here are any indication one way or the other. For all the bad things I've mentioned have happened to those that God is for. And all the good things I have mentioned here have happened to those that God is dead set against. So in the final analysis, how do you know whether God is for you or God is against you? Well, as believers in Christ, we know that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us. Because of what the Bible says God has done for us. Not the unchanging circumstances of our lives, but the unchanging Word of God. And as one of your seminary professors, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least once while I'm here, right? (laughs) Well, it's very helpful in this case. You notice there are two sentences in our text. Verse 31, first sentence, what shall we say to these things? Second sentence begins with, if God is for us, who can be against us? In the Greek language in which the New Testament was first written, they had many different words, spelled different ways, all translated if, depending on the shade of meaning. Sort of like we're told the Eskimos have something like 16 different words for snow. You know, they have a word for heavy, wet snow and a different word for dry, powdery snow. And so the Greeks had several different words for if. Now, in English, we have to do this by the context. A man might say, well, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. Well, he might or he might not, depending on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. Well, they both said if, but the second man is going regardless of the circumstances. That's kind of the way this word if is used. We could almost translate it as since God is for us. Since God is for us. But what caused Paul to reach that conclusion? It's the last two words of the previous sentence. What then shall we say to these things? And you can see Paul sort of stroke his chin here, and he thinks about these things. And as he thinks about them, he concludes from these things, God is for us. So what are these things that convinced Paul and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us? for us. Well, in, the, in one sense, these things refers to the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the more immediate context, it's the things he's just been speaking of in the previous paragraph. So, for example, we know God is for us because in verses 26 and 27, he talks of the Holy Spirit God gives to us 
when we come to Christ, who helps us to pray. Notice this, verse 26. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He, that's God the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, now living in the believer, is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God Himself intercedes for you according to the will of God as if He could pray any other way. When you don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God is praying for you. When you can't pray, he is praying for you. You ever been there? You ever been so perplexed about a situation? You don't know what the will of God is on something, but it's very important. Do you make this move or do you not? Do you, do you, do you make this change or do you not? Which direction do you go? This school or that one? This job or that one? And I, I don't believe God very often gives some sort of mystical word of direction in those kinds of cases. So we, we don't know the will of God, but we desperately want to pray and need to pray. He prays for you you're in Christ. Or you can't pray. Your heart is so heavy, like lead in your chest. All you can do is just sort of cast yourself across the bed and just sort of groan Godwardly, oh God. You can't pray because your heart is so broken. Or maybe you're in such physical pain, you're unable to pray because you're just so focused on how intensely painful it is at the moment, or maybe because of some medical, physical condition, you're so heavily medicated. You're, you're, you're coming out of surgery or, or something like that, and you're so heavily sedated, you literally can't put two thoughts together in your brain and pray. You never more desperately need prayer, but you can't pray. God is not in heaven wringing His hands saying, well, bless her heart. If she could just utter some little prayer, I could help. If he could only say something, I would have something to work with and help, but he can't pray, so what are we going to do? No, no. The Spirit Himself, it says here, intercedes for you according to the very will of God. When all you can do sometimes is just sort of out of perplexity or out of pain, all you can do is just sort of groan Godly, oh God. The Spirit of God encodes upon those groans the very will of God. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, if He will pray for me in the worst times of my life, when I don't know what to pray, I can't pray. If He'll pray for me, God is for me. But he goes on, and we know that God is for us because of the very famous next verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know, pay attention to that, we'll come back to that. And we know that for those who love God, it's not for everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Just incidentally here, I've noticed that Christians in recent years seem to have been backing off using Romans 8.28. And I think I know why. I think we've all seen it flippantly used. People just sort of callously throw out Romans 8.28 when people are on the raw edge of pain. And that's not the time for Romans 8.28. People just sort of blithely throw Romans 8, 28 at someone whose heart is broken. And that's not the time. 
Romans 8.28 is not to be used when someone is crying out in anger, anger toward God, why did you do this to me? But when they are crying out sincerely looking for why. And there probably is no why that we know. And we cling to the precious promise. And we don't want to give that up. It's too important. It's too precious. But this verse tells us that everything in the life of a Christian, even those things which are evil, God uses for our ultimate good and for His glory. Everything. All things, it says. Have you ever come across the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119, 91, which says, For all things are your servants. Martin Luther said, Even the devil is God's servant. He's the devil, but he's God's devil. So all things, even the devil, the devil's work, and the things which are evil work together for our ultimate good and for His glory. And this verse is not calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and see things better than they really are. This verse is not telling us to look for the silver lining in every cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings. This verse is not saying there aren't things that are evil. There are things that are pure evil. You know that, and God Himself says, Amen, that is pure evil. But the Bible says God is so great that He can take those things which are pure evil and by a divine alchemy in His almighty hands, He can turn them into gold, our ultimate good, and for His glory. Things which you say, there's no good in that. It is pure evil. What they did to me was pure evil. And God says, Amen. God can take even that, the worst things that ever happened to us, and turn them into our ultimate good. You take salt, I mean, sodium by itself, that can kill you. You take chloride by itself, it can kill you. You put the two together, you work them together, and in proper amounts, salt is beneficial. In the same way, God can take two things that are pure evil, and He causes them to work together, it says here. Work together in His almighty hands for our ultimate good and His glory. And it's just the opposite for those who are not called according to His purpose, who don't love God. God causes all things to work together for their ultimate evil. The best things that ever happened to unbelievers will curse them forever if they don't come to Christ. For all eternity, those who don't love God will wish they had never been blessed in their life because the greatest things that ever happened to them will turn out to condemn them forever because they didn't thank God for those things. They didn't use them for God's glory, but only for themselves. And for all eternity, the best things that happen to them in this life will curse them forever. But God is so great, He can able to take the worst things that ever happened to His children and bless us through them forever. He doesn't just neutralize them so they don't hurt us anymore when we get to heaven. He actually blesses us through them forever and ever. And He does this, it says, with all things. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? In a gathering this size, if we had the time and the transparency to talk about it, I'm sure there are people who would be able to tell of things that someone probably should be in prison for. And I've lived long enough to have some pretty awful things happen to me, both physically with cancer and other things and with things that people have done. And you live long enough and they're going to happen to you too. But the good news of this verse is, Paul says that God is so great. He can take the worst things that have ever happened to us and bless us through them forever so that we can say, and only a Christian can say, and only a Christian can say through tears sometimes, and only by faith, if I knew everything God knew and I had God's heart, that's very important, 
I would have allowed everything in my life God has allowed. Only a Christian can say that. And most of the time we can say that only by faith and often with, with tears in our eyes and our teeth clenched perhaps, but it is the truth. That God can take everything, even the worst things. Paul says, you know what, if God will do that, God is for me. What a great promise. Now, there are things in my life right now, if I could remove them, I would. But this is a promise that says God will take all those things and use them for my ultimate good and for his glory. And that's one thing to look into the past and say that when it's been long enough. My first pastorate, I was the, right out of seminary, I was a 17th pastor in 21 years, this little country church. Now, that includes, normally the time between 17 pastors would be more than 21 years. This included the tenure of those pastors and the time between 17 pastors, 21 years. We were there 15 months, which is almost a record at that little church. And my wife and I experienced five hospitalizations and three surgeries from the stress of that 15 months. Both of us were told, you can never be parents. But after that 15 months, the Lord opened a door for us in the suburbs of Chicago where I went for 15 years. God gave us a year there for every month in the other situation. Turned our mourning into dancing there. And after I'd been there a while, I looked back and I said, now I see why God brought me through the pressure cooker of that first situation. God has given us a wonderful church to serve in, but I would not have been ready. And if I'd gone directly to that church, I would have ruined that wonderful church if I had not been through those awful 15 months. And P.S., God gave us a baby and bifocals the same year. <laughs> I have a daughter just got married. And so I would look back and say, now I know why God allowed that to happen until I started teaching on your behalf in one of your seminaries. And now I look out every day at the faces of young men who are pastoring that same church, if you know what I mean. And it makes a world of difference to say, brother, I have been there. So now, more than 30 years later, 35 years later, I can look back and say, now I know why God allowed us to go through that horrible, horrible time. Sometimes the pain is distant enough, things clarify enough after the decades, you can see why God allowed it. And it's easy to look into the future and say, oh, yes, I'm sure everything that happens to me out there in the future will be for my ultimate good and for God's glory. You know why it's easy to say that? I haven't felt the pain of what's out there yet. You know what's really hard for me in relation to Romans 8, 28? It's believing that everything in my life today, God is using for my ultimate good and for His glory. Because there are many things in my life today, if I had the power, I would change them. But God doesn't give me that power. But that's what the Scripture calls me to believe, that everything God has allowed in my life today, I would have allowed if I knew everything God knew and I had God's heart. And I would have allowed it because God is all good. He is all-powerful. He is all-loving. And the Scripture calls me to believe that, sometimes with tears, but that is the claim of the Word of God, and that is the great promise. And so the Apostle Paul can say, you know what, if God will do that, God is for me. And remember, it is Paul who wrote this. It is the Apostle Paul. This is a man who said, I have been beaten so many times, I can't even remember how many times I've been beaten. How many times you've been beat for the gospel? He said, five times 
I received the 39 lashes from the Jews. So what's that? 195 times the leather whip came across his back. How many times for you? He said, I've been stoned and left for dead. I've spent a whole night and a day in, in the ocean, in the sea, thinking I was going to die. I've been in danger from robbers. I've been in danger from my own countrymen who wanted to kill me. I've been in danger from Gentile enemies who wanted to kill me. And he goes on and on and on. This is the man who says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. That's the man who gives us this promise. And notice it begins with, and we know this. Romans 8, 28 begins with, and we know this. How do we know this? Because when are the times we cling to Romans 8, 28? The worst times in our lives, right? When there seems to be no purpose, something awful has happened, and the only thing we can cling to, we see no reason, but we cling to the surety there is a reason because God is in control. The worst times in our life is when Romans 8, 28 is precious, right? How do we know that these things are so? The previous two verses. Those are the times the Holy Spirit is praying for us, remember? In the worst times in our life, when we don't know what to pray, when we can't pray, but we most desperately need prayer, the worst times in our lives, that's when we're given the assurance the Holy Spirit is certainly praying for us. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, wouldn't you? And those are the times the Spirit is certainly praying for us, and that's why we can know that in the worst times in our life, God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him, who call according to His purposes. And once again, it, it's not a promise that there's coming a day God will neutralize the memory. You will forget about it. It'll never hurt you again. There'll be no more pain from that. No, no, it's even better than that. God doesn't just neutralize the worst things that ever happened to us so that the memory is gone and the pain doesn't hurt us anymore. He actually transforms them by divine alchemy that in His almighty hands, He blesses us through them forever and ever. Paul says, if God is that good, if God will do that, God is for us. That's not all. He goes on in what's a passage known as <clears throat> as Paul's golden chain, Romans 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. The Bible says here, if you're in Christ, God foreknew you. Verse 29. It means more than he just knew about you in advance. It means more than he just knew choices you would make in advance. It means a more intimate knowledge than that. We could almost translate it as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you, every choice you would ever make, every sin you would ever commit, and he loved you anyway. And He predestined you to become conformed to the image of His Son. He predestined you to be like Jesus. Now, if the Bible said here that God had predestined us to be like angels, we would have rejoiced forever that God would make us as glorious as beings like that. 
twice the Apostle John in the book of Revelation fell on his face and worshiped angels. Now, John knew better than that. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? Especially by the time of the book of Revelation, he knew, and he's the one who wrote for us the uniqueness of Christ, that Jesus is God, Jesus alone is God. He knew you don't worship angels. But when angels actually appeared to him, even in a 15-watt bulb version of their glory, he couldn't help himself, and he fell on his face, and they had to say, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure he said something like, oh, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. You're just too glorious. Couldn't help myself, I'm sorry. He knew better. But in their presence, they were so glorious, even the Apostle John, who had seen Jesus, who had seen Jesus transfigured, even the Apostle John could not help himself when he saw angels. But it's better than that. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he predestined, these he also called through the gospel. He called you to Himself. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were His enemy. And yet He came into the grave of your spiritual death and called you to Himself like He came into the grave of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And if He hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But He came in and said, Lazarus, come forth. There was that Thursday night when I was nine years old. I'd been in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night since nine months before I was born. I'd heard the gospel many times, but that Thursday night through the gospel, I heard him calling me like he had never called me before, like he did in a way he didn't call my friends on either side of me that night. And he called me to himself with a call that was unmistakable and made Jesus irresistibly beautiful. And the first thing I wanted to do like Lazarus, when Lazarus was made alive, the first thing he wanted to do freely was run to Christ. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's exactly what you wanted to do when he called you through the gospel. He didn't call everybody in your family, all of your friends. He didn't call everyone present in that dorm room that night, in that Sunday morning service, in that sp small group. But he called you through the gospel. And he had no obligation to do so. But he called you. And whom he called these, he also justified, Paul says here. Meaning infinitely more than, if we may say, the mere forgiveness of sins. As though it's possible to speak of the mere forgiveness of every sin we ever committed. Because the Bible says that, well, in agreement with Jonathan Edwards, or Edwards agrees with the Bible, rather, in his famous statement when Jonathan Edwards said, my sins are infinite, upon infinite, and multiplied by infinite. And he said that because he realized that we never go one second without sin. If you believe you can, that leads to a great heresy. If you could go one second without sin, it's often said, then you can go two, right? If you can go two, you can go ten. If you can go ten seconds without sin, you can go a minute without sin, right? Well, I, yeah, I guess so. If you can go a minute, you can go an hour. And it leads to sinless perfectionism, which is heresy. Folks, we can't go one second without sin. Because every word, deed, thought, and motive is infected to some degree with sin, even when we're not aware of it. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, every thought, every word, every deed, every motive would be some shade of blue. Some a dark navy blue, some a light shade of blue, but everything would be some shade of blue, even the most selfless thing we've ever done in our lives. You help some stranger on the side of the road. You get up in the middle of the night for a sick child. Even in that, there's some degree of selfishness, even if we're not aware of it. It may be nothing more than, well, I hope my 
spouse appreciates this. Or it may be nothing more than, well, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. But we never do anything with a perfectly pure motive. We never have any perfectly pure thoughts or words or deeds. And every time we sin, which is every moment, that's a double sin. Because the greatest of all commandments is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And every time we're sinning, which is every moment, that means we're breaking the greatest of all commandments. That's why every sin is a double sin. So Edwards could say, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. When I try to make up for my sins and clean them up, I do so with bloody hands. Someone said, even our repentance needs to be repented of. Even our tears need to be washed. We never do anything that's perfectly pure. Our sins are infinite upon infinite, multiplied by infinite. But do you realize if you'd never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven because that just brings you to zero, to neutral. And we must have more to go to heaven than no sin, and we have infinite sin. But if we had never sinned in our lives, we couldn't go to heaven because we must also have perfect righteousness, the Bible says. Be ye perfect, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Who can do that? Who's done that? Well, there was a man, a man who came from heaven. A man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness, who every moment of his life he loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, his neighbor as himself. And Jesus earned heaven. Is that salvation by works? Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone worked for your salvation, and Jesus worked 33 years of perfect righteousness, and he earned heaven. And that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And he willingly offered himself on the cross as a substitute. And we know God accepted that because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven, from which he will come someday as judge and king over all. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we, the, the infinite sinners, might be zero, neutral, Know that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we are in Him, when we believe into Christ, and that's what believe means. We don't just believe about someone or believe in. It literally means we believe into Christ. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. We believe into Christ. And once we are in Christ, united with Him, we get credit for His life. God looks upon you as though, he, as though you healed all those people. He looked upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. He looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ, as though you had the perfectly pure heart of Christ. And he looks upon Jesus as though Jesus had lived my life. And you know what? My life got the perfectly pure Jesus, the atomic bomb of the wrath of God. That's what it means to be justified, not just to be merely forgiven, but to be declared righteous, to have the righteousness of Christ. He gives you credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And whom he justified, it says, these he also glorified. Made like Christ forever and ever. Not like Christ and his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as the Mormons believe. We're going to be made like Christ in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God forever and ever. And notice this past tense there. In the mind of God, it's done. It's future in our experience, but it is done. So Paul says, hmm, what do we say to these things? 
What things, Paul? He gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't know what to pray. I can't pray. He prays for me, the Spirit Himself, and He prays according to the very will of God. And then He takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happen to me, and He doesn't just neutralize them so there comes a day when they don't hurt anymore and I don't remember them anymore, the pain is gone. He actually blesses me through them forever. He turns them into gold by a divine alchemy with His almighty hands. And then, knowing everything about me, Every sin I would ever commit against him. He loved me anyway. And predestined me. Me. To be like Jesus. And then when I was dead in trespasses and sins. And though it was no benefit to have me on the team. He did not need me. In his grace he called me to himself. And then when he called me. He justified me. He gave me. Me credit for having lived the very life of Jesus. And he has ensured that for all eternity, I will shine like Christ and reflect the glory of God forever. What do we say to these things? Oh, there's a lot we could say. <laughs> but at the very least, we can say this. God is for us. If God will do all that for me, God is for me. Well then, if that's true, why is my life so stinking hard? It sounds great at church on Sunday morning. God is for us. We sing the great songs, and it's a wonderful time of fellowship, and we say, amen, this sounds wonderful, but i got to go home. And then when I go home this afternoon, life is hard. I have to go to work tomorrow. When I go to work, life is hard. What do you mean? God is for us who is against us. It makes me think of a story in the book of Judges, chapter 6. You remember the story of the book of Judges? Basically, it's up and down, up and down. They'd be faithful to God, Israel would, but then they would become complacent, and they would then slip into idolatry, and so God would allow their enemies to come in and run roughshod over them so that they'd learn it's better to serve God than false gods, and they would return to faithfulness, and God would send them a judge, a leader to rule over them and lead them in godliness, but then they'd go back, and so this is a low time. And God was using the Midianites to run roughshod over his people, that they'd learn it's better to serve God than false gods. And there's a man named Gideon. He's down in a wine press, hole in the ground like the size of a baptistry. He's down there threshing grain. And he has to do that because the Midianites would wait until the Israelites had planted, grown, harvested their crops, and then come in and say, thank you very much, and just walk off with a harvested crop. So he's down in this hole in the ground, threshing a little bit of grain, and you can't thresh a whole lot down there. But he's just trying to get enough to feed his family for the next day or so. And he's got his pitchfork throwing the grain up just above ground level, and the wind would blow the chaff away. And then it falls back down all over him, and there's dust and chaff and sweat all over his body. So he's thinking about how hard it is just to feed his family a little bit of food. And suddenly this hole in the ground is illuminated. And he turns and there's an angel standing there. And the angel says to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. The Lord is with you. Sort of like Paul saying, God is for you. 
And I can see old Gideon at this point kind of take his pitchfork and put it in the ground and put his hands on the top of the handle. And he looks at the angel and he says this, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? You're standing there in all your splendor telling me how God is with me. Look around, buddy. Does it look like God is with us? Look at me. Look what I'm having to do just to feed my family a little bit. Look at the, all the things we're under here. The persecution, does it look to you like God is with us? That's the way you can feel when you hear me say what the Bible says, that God is for us. Life is hard. Reminds me of the title of a devotional book for junior high kids. If God is for me, why can't I get my locker open? Well, when the Bible says God is for us, who is against us, it doesn't say nothing or no one is against us. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear the whole world is against us. Jesus said, if the world hates, hates me, it will hate those who follow me. The world will hate you. And to be a Christian is increasingly like swimming upstream in the culture, right? With every newscast, it gets harder and harder to be a Christian. And you guys have been one of the poster cities for that. It's hard to serve Christ, and it's getting harder. The whole world is against us. But not only that, the Bible says the flesh is against us. The sin factory that beats in my chest works against me. Although we are justified, we're declared righteous, there's still a part of us, as long as we are in this body, there's still a part of us that, like gravity, pulls us away from God. The Spirit of God in us pulls us Godward and gives us these new Godward hungers and longings that we didn't have before. And though we have spiritual life, Paul says in Galatians, the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. So we don't always do what we want. There's a war going on in us all the time. We love God. We want to serve God. We want the will of God. We wish we never sinned again. And then we'll turn around right after that and sin. And when we sin, we sin because we choose to sin at that moment. I want sin more than righteousness and obedience at this moment. And that makes life hard. Because we'll make sinful choices. And they'll leave scars on our bodies and scars on our relationships. Because of the sin factory beating in our chest, our life is hard. And the Bible says the devil makes life hard. The devil made life harder for Job. He will make life harder for us sometimes. But according to the late James Montgomery Boyce, what is happening here is it's like... Paul has an old-fashioned scales here. And on one side, he's putting peanuts. He says, all right, who's against you? Well, the, the world is against me, Paul. Okay, plunk, put that there. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory in my chest is against me. Okay, put that there, plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil's sure against me. Okay, plunk. Anything else? Well, I think my boss is against me. All right, plunk, put that there. Anything else? Yeah, my teachers are against me. And then it's as though he throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for us, who is against us? It doesn't mean that nothing or no one is against us, but what are they? Who are they if God is for us? So ultimately what is being told here is that there is nothing or no one who can thwart God's eternal plan for us. If God is for us, no matter who is against us, what are they? Because nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for his people. 
And that's because God has decreed that he is for us. He has decreed the things we saw in Romans 8, 29 through 31. There's a difference between the permissive will of God and the decretive will of God. Sometimes we just speak of the will of God. But it's helpful sometimes to distinguish between the permissive will of God and the decretive will of God. Here's an example of the permissive will of God. You shall not bear false witness. Well, that's God's will, isn't it? One of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. Does He permit people to bear false witness? We've all done it. Not without responsibility. But He permits violations of His will in that case. Here's the will of God too. Let there be light. Could there not have been light? No. God decreed that there would be light. In your life, brother or sister, God permits suffering, but He has decreed glory. If God is for you, nothing or no one can thwart His eternal plan for you. He permits suffering in our lives, suffering caused by ourselves, suffering caused by the world, the flesh, the devil, but He has decreed glory, and nothing and no one can stop that. He permits you to sin but not so as to fall. He has decreed He is going to glorify you forever and ever. You will not fall. You will not lose your salvation. Because if you could, you would. You already would have. You would have lost it already if you could lose your salvation. But He has decreed that those whom He justifies, those whom He calls, will never fall. He has decreed that He will glorify them. And that means if you're truly a Christian, Nothing and no one in your past can cause you to lose your salvation. You may have fallen under false teaching in the past, but those false teachers cannot cause you to lose your salvation. If you've left some religious group that now condemns you, there is no religious group, no religious official that can decree that you lose your salvation. Neither unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss can so confine you or restrict you from following Christ as you would want that would ever cause Christ to reject you. And when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? Brother or sister, that who includes you? The who includes you. You did not put yourself into God's grace by your good behavior, and thank God He will not reject you because of your sinful behavior. <clears throat> now, I say that pastorally to those of very tender conscience. Anyone who hears that and thinks, great, <clears throat> I can live the way I want, still go to heaven, is almost certainly a stranger to grace in the first place. But there are those of tender conscience who want God more than anything, who want His heaven, His salvation more than anything, and they are terrified that because of their inability to conquer a particular sin, their longevity in a particular sin, 
they believe, they fear that at last they may have exhausted the patience of God who said, enough, I've been patient with you long enough, I've forgiven you too many times, you've crossed the line, you're out. And they are terrified that they have finally exhausted the patience of God, though they want him more than anything. My brother or sister, if God is for us, who is against us, that who includes you. And most of the time, I feel like Jonathan Edwards when he said, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But occasionally, occasionally I will say to myself, well, at least I haven't lined people up on a beach and cut their heads off. At least I haven't tried to manipulate the legal system to persecute pastors churches but you know what god knows god knows not only and he knew it in eternity past he knew not only every sin i ever would commit but he knew every sin i never did commit but would have if i'd had the chance and he loved me anyway not only does god know all the sins i've committed that i don't even know i've committed not only does he know every sin I ever committed, but he knows how much worse a sinner I would have been if I'd been in somebody else's shoes, if I'd been born in some other culture, if I'd had more temptation than I've had, if I'd had more pressure, worse circumstances that I've had. God knows how much worse a sinner I would have been, and he loved me anyway. When God is for you, who is against you? And the who includes you. Well, let me wrap this up with these practical words here. First of all, we need to follow Paul's example here. I love this. Meaning we need to reason out and rest upon what the Scripture says is true. Regardless of what the circumstances say or what we feel or think, we need to reason out, rest upon what the Bible says is true. Notice his example here. He says, all right. <clears throat> he gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't know what to pray. I can't pray. He's praying for me. He takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things, and doesn't just neutralize them. He actually blesses me through them forever and ever. And before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I would ever commit, He loved me anyway. And He called me, or He predestined me, me, to be like Jesus and though I was his enemy and dead in trespasses and sins and running to hell as fast as I could, he called me with a call that ensured that I would come down. He made Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me so that I freely wanted to run to Christ. And then he not only took away every sin I ever committed, but he gave me, me, credit of having lived the life of Jesus. And then he has ensured for all eternity future, I'm going to be like Jesus that's true then God is for me that's a great model when you feel as though God doesn't love you what is the truth when you feel as though God is against you what is the truth when you feel as though God will never use you God can't use you though you love Christ you want him yet you feel under his Wrath, what is the truth? Truth is verse 1 in this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And when your circumstances tell you 
God is not for you. What is the truth? I know what your circumstances say, but what is the truth? I know what you feel, but what is the truth? I know what you see, but what is the truth? The truth is God is for us. That's the truth. And he's demonstrated it in this passage. We need to rest upon that. I need this a hundred times every day because I feel and see and think things that, that go against the truth. And I need to be reminded and rest upon, but what is the truth? And the truth is, if God is for us, who is against us? Second, if God is for you, he's for you forever. So don't doubt his love. Several years ago, I was reading a book by the most famous of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. It was a book called Communion with God. <clears throat> and I was reading along. It was on page 13, nothing really outstanding. It was okay. But then I read one sentence that just flipped on like a light switch, my tears. Here's that sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to Him. How do you think he's going to finish that? The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He prays for you when you can't. And you don't know what to pray, and he prays the very will of God for you. And he takes everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things, and doesn't just neutralize them so that the pain is gone someday, but he blesses you through them forever and ever. And before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about you, every sinful thought you would ever have, every sin you would ever commit, he loved you anyway. And he predestined you to be like Jesus. And though he had no obligation to do so, and though he hasn't called most people in the world in the same way, he called you. He made sure you would hear the gospel. And through the gospel, by his spirit, he called you like Lazarus. And he gave you credit for having lived the very life of Jesus himself and ensured that for all eternity you would shine like the sun, like Jesus himself. And you wonder if he loves you. What else does he have to do? What could be a greater indication that he loves you? Let you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? If God is for you, <laughs> he is for you forever. So don't doubt his love. And obviously the final question is this, is God for you? Is God for you? If with a trembling heart, humbly you say, I do believe I've come to Christ. I want him more than anything. And if that means he's for me, then I, yes, I do believe God is for me. Then rejoice in that, brother or sister. Be ravished by that. Bring all the spiritual pleasure out of that that your soul can, can, can get. Be ravished by the thought, God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. Be rejoiced by that. And if you're not sure that God is for you, 
be very sure that he is for all who will come to Christ. Regardless of what you've done, if you will come to Christ, you can be sure God is for you. But if you've never come to Christ, realize God is against you. You have made him your enemy. He would receive you, but you have rejected his son and lived for yourself. Oh, you may have come to church all your life. You may, have, you may be in a Christian home, but God is your enemy because you made him your enemy because you refused to come to his son. And you may look around and say, well, you know, my life is going pretty well. In fact, I wouldn't change places with anyone in this room. That doesn't mean God is for you. Just because your business is being blessed, things are good in the home, that doesn't mean God is for you. But if you will come to Christ, you can be sure he will receive you, regardless of who you are, or what you've done or how many times you've done it. You may have come this morning thinking, I'm afraid to even come in this place with these people. The, the ceiling may collapse on this place if a sinner like me comes in here today. He will receive you. Come and welcome to Jesus. Or you may be here and you've been in church every Sunday all your life. But if your life were exposed, it would be the biggest scandal in Texas. You'd be exposed as the biggest hypocrite in this church. He'll receive even you. Even someone self-righteous like you, he'll receive you. To everyone, he says, come and welcome. And if you will come, even right now, Regardless of whether you ever get the job you want or the income you want or the house you want or the spouse you want or the children you want, if you come to Christ, you get God <laughs> and all that is in Him. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray together.